Welcome to the Small Town Summit Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Whittinghill. I'm excited to get you some breakout session audio today from our May 2023 Vermont Summit. Uh, Heather Peets led this breakout. She is a pastor's wife and mother of five and a school teacher in Vermont where she lives with her husband and children. And for nearly 15 years, she's served in educational ministry. She's really passionate about Christian literature, uh, a literature of all kinds. And she led a breakout titled Lessons from the Life and Poetry of Anne Bradstreet. I had the privilege of attending. I knew not very much about Anne Bradstreet, but I love poetry. And I was so moved by uh, this woman who was the first published poet in America, um, but she was such a virtuous Christian woman who was a devoted wife and nurturing mother and committed saint. And she suffered in astounding ways and wrote beautifully through it. So we hope that this audio is a great blessing to you and that her life and her poetry instructs you on how to live and minister in small town New England. Enjoy. Um, first, I'll just introduce myself. I'm Heather Peets. My husband is pastor of Thetford Baptist Church, which is just across the river from Hanover, New Hampshire. Um, we have about 50 people in our church, maybe. Um, I teach at Mid-Vermont Christian School, so when Josh asked me if I would be willing to lead a breakout session, I thought, I don't really know anything about ministering in New England, so I don't feel like I'm the typical pastor's wife. I'm not the pastor's wife I'd always envisioned being. So I thought, I don't have a lot to say, but I know someone who does, and that is Anne Bradstreet. She was not a pastor's wife. Her husband ended up becoming governor of Massachusetts. <laughs> but she probably knew something about what it's like to be in the spotlight. Um, I don't think he became governor until after she died, but he was still a prominent person. And her dad was a very prominent person as well. So, um, just some basic facts about the life of Anne Bradstreet. She was born Anne Dudley in England in 1612. So we're talking 400 years ago, right? Um, she was a very well-educated woman. Her father was the steward of an earl's property, which gave Anne access to this earl's library. And it used to be thought that the education Anne had was rare for a woman. When I went to college and took in English literature and American literature, we were told Anne Bradstreet had a very rare education. Interestingly, historians have found out not that long ago, a lot of women, especially in her social class, were very well educated as she was. So she read the classics. She could read in Latin uh, and probably Greek. And so sometimes we think, especially the Puritans, although they were, maybe they oppressed women. You know, that's what our society wants us to believe. They really didn't. Um, she was benefited by being of a you know somewhat higher social class but she, she was encouraged to learn and to express herself um, in 1628 16 year old Anne married Simon Bradstreet who was a few years older than she was and just a couple years later Anne and her husband went with Anne's 
parents to New England. So the Pilgrims came to uh, Plymouth in 1620. The Massachusetts Bay Colony was founded in 1630. Anne didn't come on the first group to, to land in, Plymouth, in um, Massachusetts Bay. She came with the next group. Um, so very early colonist. Uh, leaves behind a comfortable life in England to come to basically nothing here in New England. Anne definitely knew many of the trials that people today would face. She gets married at 16, five years of marriage, no children. And this was an incredible grief to her. Eventually, God blesses her with eight children, though. And all of them live to adulthood, which we often think of, you know, how, how often children died in the, in the colonial era. In 1650, here's Anne in her 40s. Her brother-in-law has to take a trip back to England from New England. And he takes with them a collection of poetry that Anne had written. And while he's in England, he gets it published. So Anne Bradstreet, a Puritan woman, is the first published American poet. Okay. Um, this is our, you know, our Christian heritage. Our first American poet is a Christian. And interestingly, I am not a feminist, so, but I, I think it's pretty cool that it's a woman. Um, in one in my grad school class that I took a few couple years ago um, that covered Ann Bradstreet, my professor, and this is in a Baptist university, said it shouldn't really surprise us that Ann Bradstreet knew theology so well and that there's so much theology in her poetry um, because the Puritans wanted everyone, men, women, children, to know the Bible. So Anne, being a pretty apt theologian, that, that's the goal, right, for all Christians to know the Bible. Um, and then she died in 1672. I have a picture there for you of, if you Googled Anne Bradstreet and clicked an image, you'll find this picture. But that is not her. That's an artist's guess, you know, at what a Puritan woman would have looked like. We don't know what she looked like. There's no existing image. Um, we don't even know where she's buried. She would have had a wooden marker at some point. Some, uh, I don't know if they're archaeologists or what, they think they might have found it. Uh, supposedly maybe near Merrimack College uh, in Andover, Mass, but nobody really knows. So we don't know what she looked like. We don't know where her physical body is. But yet 400 years later, people are still studying her. People are still learning from her. I like to think of these Christians who've come before us kind of in light of Hebrews 11, right? We call it the kind of the Faith Hall of Fame, where the writer of Hebrews goes through all these Old Testament saints and holds up their example of faith. And he talks about there being this great cloud of witnesses that encourage us. Without adding to scripture, I like to think that that cloud of witnesses includes all the other saints, right, that have come after. And that Anne Bradstreet is kind of in that cloud of witnesses, whose example of faith is one that encourages us to live a life of faith. Um, 
Hebrews 11.1 1 in the CSV uh, says that now faith, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by this, faith, our ancestors were approved. And it's not the fact that Bradstreet was a prominent woman that makes her worthy of study. It's the example of faith that she displayed. Um, so in looking at Bradstreet, I thought, how can I connect some experiences in her life, some things she wrote in poetry to our current New England ministry context? So I hope I'm not doing her a disservice by being a little metaphorical in some cases, um, but I think we can learn some things we all could apply. And the first lesson would be um, trusting God in the wilderness. When Anne Bradstreet came to Massachusetts Bay, it was literally a wilderness. Okay, I mean, there's a colony there, a very small colony, but there's pretty much nothing else, right? There's a few houses, you know, there's probably a stockade around it. None of the comforts that she had left behind in England. Um, her father is quoted uh, as writing, we found the colony in a sad and unexpected condition, above 80 of them being dead the winter before, and many of those alive, weak and sick, all the corn and bread amongst them, all hardly sufficient to feed them a fortnight. Okay, they get off this boat after a months long journey, and those who had come before them are barely hanging on. And you probably heard about the same thing happened in Jamestown. Same thing happened um, with the pilgrims. Half of them died their first year. Same thing is happening in Massachusetts Bay Colony. I think about New England today. In some ways, it's still a wilderness. And we come here, maybe you came from somewhere else, and you come to minister here, and you think, these people are sick and dying. Spiritually, this is a sick and dying place. New Hampshire and Vermont, they trade back and forth of which one is the most secular. This is not an easy ministry. A few years ago, my husband and I went to the New England Center for Expository Preaching conference that they had. Their motto is plowing granite, <laughs> right? This land is full of granite and the people's hearts are often like granite. And so I think of this, this place, New England, right? Maybe any of others of you maybe had spent some time in the South. My husband and I were in Florida. Then we went to Texas, and it's like there's a church on every corner. So you could count the churches in a 10-mile radius. You're like, why are there so many churches, right? <laughs> you come to New England, and there's maybe one church in the town, and that church might be a dead church, right? And so New England, in some ways, it's still a wilderness. Um, Bradstreet, she wrote to her children, some of her reflections through her life and one thing she told them is that when she first came to new england she said i came into this country where i found a new world and new manners at which my heart rose now doug wilson's written a book on ann bradstreet he says that when she talks about new manners she's probably talking about things within the church in new england and specifically 
the way that they required people to go through a process to become members of the church. And Brad Street, she's a Christian, but she comes in this new context and the church does things differently than she's used to in England and her heart rises up in her. Maybe you've had that same feeling about your particular church. I know for me, sometimes or my husband has even had to tell me, this is your home church. You are not from Merrimack, New Hampshire anymore. That's not your church anymore. Schofield Memorial Church in Dallas, Texas, which doesn't even exist anymore, is not your home church anymore. Thetford Baptist Church is your home church. And my heart rises up because I say, I wanted to be in a church of 200 people. I wanted to be in a church that ran a Christian school so my husband and I could work alongside together. I want to be in a church that this or that. And my heart rises up and I'm still working on this. <laughs> I am still working on this. Um, but Brad Street, her heart rose up and then she said she submitted to God that this the whatever they wanted her to do to become a member of this church in New England, she discerned this is what God would have, and she submitted to do it. That's helpful context, because I thought when she said, in which my heart rose, that she was hopeful and encouraged. Yeah. I think I was misunderstood. Like, I, I was thinking the yeah. My heart rose, she meant rebelled. Yeah. 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 Or cried out anyway. Yeah. yeah. So just thinking about trusting God, right, in this context of New England. It's a hard ministry. There may be things about it we do differently. But Brad Street's example to us is one of submission to God and trust in Him. Um, Brad Street experienced a lot of difficulties. She only lived 60 years. Um, but the things that she experienced are so similar, I think, to anybody's experience. It's a universal experience. Um, she wrote to her children about how she struggled with this infertility for so long. Uh, but yet, through that, she prayed, and God eventually blesses her with children. Um, I have five children. I didn't experience infertility, but I had some miscarriages, right? I'm sure that's an experience that many of you faced, or some of you, or you know people, right? And yet, she turns to God throughout that experience. Uh, she writes about having sinkings and droopings, um, not enjoying felicity that sometimes she should have had, uh, darkness and seeing no light, being in sickness and pain. She had physical ailments. Um, I don't know that we know today what those were, right? But some kind of, uh, I think she eventually became kind of like an invalid but she also struggled with anxiety and depression and fear. But through all those times, right, she turns to God. She has one poem where she writes about being awake at night, just kind of lying there in bed. And she didn't want to get out of bed because it would have woken everybody up. And so, I mean, for me, if I'm lying awake at night, I'm usually turning something over in my mind. She talks about just communing with God and feeling this refreshing in her spirit, right? So it was just this pattern for her of, yes, real difficulty, but keep taking it to God. Um, 
the number of her poems are about deaths that she experienced in her family. Her children lived to adulthood, but she had three grandchildren who died in their infancy or toddlerhood, and a daughter-in-law. Um, this daughter-in-law had four children, three of them died. While the daughter-in-law Mercy's husband was away, Mercy <coughs> gave birth to the fifth child and then died. Mercy died, the daughter-in-law. The baby lived, I don't know, like a week or something and then died. And so Anne writes about this in a poem that she addresses at least in part to her son. Uh, whose wife and baby have died and three others of his children have died. Um, and the grief that Anne experienced as a grandmother, as a mother-in-law, it just, it's very moving. I mean, sometimes I read these poems and I just can't help but really tear up because you can tell this is someone who really felt this pain as we would feel it too. Um, she she wrote poems for each of the three grandchildren uh, other not the baby um, that died right after birth but the other three grandchildren that she lost she wrote a poem for each of them and it doesn't matter you know if this is a three-year-old it's a it's a one-year-old she knew their birth dates she in the in the uh, title of the poem she even dates them you know to the month of how old they were Sometimes we have this impression that, oh, the pilgrims and the Puritans, the colonists, they lost so many children, it kind of didn't matter to them. I, I actually learned, I think I was taught that in my, one of my history classes. Like, oh, they, they kind of were just so used to it. They'd even like name one kid Simon and then he'd die and they'd name another kid Simon, you know, like as though they didn't care. They cared. She knew exactly to the, to the month how old these little children were. And she grieved over them. And yet, in each poem, she again turns to God in her grief. Um, this one's probably my favorite. This was for a baby, her grandson Simon, who was one month and one day old when he passed away. No sooner came but gone and fallen asleep. Acquaintance short, yet parting caused us weep. Three flowers, two scarcely blown, the last in the bud, cropped by the Almighty's hand. So she's comparing now this three, grand, three grandchildren who died to a, a flower that God has just come and picked out of his garden. Yet is he good, with dreadful awe before him, let's be mute. Such was his will, but why, let's not dispute. Um, I love that she's saying, yeah, like, be quiet. Um, because sometimes if we're, if we're not mute, we might say the wrong thing, mm -hmm. right? Um, with humble hearts and mouths put in the dust, let's say he's merciful as well as just, right? In our grief, we sometimes can say things that we maybe shouldn't say. Um, when my husband was in seminary, I had two miscarriages in about three months and then a couple months later I was pregnant again and I found out it was twins very early on and I was absolutely panicked. People would tell me, oh look, look what God's done for you and I would think, what are you talking about? My loss would be twice as much if I don't 
end up having this pregnancy. And there was a time I told my husband, I can't trust God. He killed my other two babies. And my husband basically had to say to me, in a nice way, shut up, <laughs> right? How can you say that, right? I should have taken Ann Bradstreet's advice and been mute, right? Because my husband said, yes, you can trust him. He died for you. And so Ann is very wise. We're not going to talk about why God did this. We don't know. What we can trust is he is just and he is merciful. And so she, she feels real sorrow. She feels real grief. She allows herself those emotions, but then she always turns them over to God. Um, so she's, you know, physical ailments, anxieties, losses of family members. Uh, if it couldn't get any worse, well, her house burns down in 1666. And this is another source of a poem. Verses upon the burning of our house is the poem she writes in response to losing her house. Um, so the first slide, this by itself could be a poem. And if it ended here, we'd be like, oh, okay, nice. Um, she says, in silent night, when rest I took, for sorrow near I did not look. I wakened was with thundering noise and piteous shrieks of dreadful voice, that fearful sound of fire and fire, let no man know is my desire. Has anybody ever had a house fire? Okay. I mean, I can't imagine just waking up in the middle of the night, somebody screaming that your house is on fire. Right. I starting up the light did spy, and to my God my heart did cry to strengthen me in my distress and not to leave me succorless or helpless. You know, that panic of waking up and immediately, God help me, right, is her cry. Now the poem could have ended here and be like, oh, well that's good, she found hope in God and you know, he saved her from the burning house. But no, it, it goes on. Um, most of the time when we have a difficulty, we know I got to turn this over to God, but how many times do we pick it up again, right? And we definitely see that in, in this poem. Then coming out beheld a space, the flame consume my dwelling place. Okay, so she's wakened up, there's a fire. She runs out of the house, God help me. And now she's watching it burn to the ground. And when I could no longer look, right? I mean, just imagine that like, oh my word, I can't look at this, this is just horrible. Right. I blessed his name that gave and took, that laid my goods now in the dust, and uh, yea, so it was, and so twas just. Again, just like with the death of the baby, I, I can trust that God is just. God just took all my earthly possessions away, and yet he's just. It was his own, it was not mine. Far be it that I should repine. He might of all justly bereft, and, but yet sufficient for us left. And he could have taken everything. And that still would have been just. But yet what he did leave, well, we trust God that that's enough. And again, I, the poem could end right here. Oh, yep. She started to get anxious again. She turns it over to God again. When by the ruins off I passed. So we have the immediate reaction. 
my house is on fire. God help me. I'm watching my house burn down and I can't even look anymore. God, you are just. And now it's like a little time has passed and there's the ruins, right? The ruins that stand there for a while and remind her of the house every time she sees them. When oft by the ruins, or sorry, when by the ruins oft I passed, my sorrowing eyes aside did cast. And here and there the places spy, where oft I sat and long did lie. Here stood that trunk, and there that chest, there lay that store I counted best. My pleasant things in ashes lie, and them behold no more shall I. Under thy roof no guest shall sit, uh, nor at thy table eat a bit. No pleasant tale shall e'er be told, nor things recounted done of old. No candle e'er shall shine in thee, nor bridegroom's voice e'er heard shall be. And this is normal, right? To your house burnt down, of course you're going to have memories of that house. And this is where her family lived, right? This is where they would have guests come and enjoy a meal with them. And, and enjoy talking together. There's nothing wrong with missing those things, right? As she looks, well, that's, oh, I had, I had nice things, right? God gives us nice things sometimes, right? This is a normal reaction to, to grieve the loss of things, right? And this pleasant home. But yet, again, she has to turn her thoughts to God. In silence ever shalt thou lie, adieu, Ado, all's vanity. All these things really, they're empty. Then straight again my heart to chide. And did thy wealth on earth abide? Didst fix thy hope on moldering dust? The arm of flesh did make, didst make thy trust? Right? She's scolding herself because she's realizing, yes, I miss these things, but did I really put all my faith in these things? Raise up thy thoughts above the sky, that dunghill mists away may fly. Thou hast an house on high erect, framed by that mighty architect. With glory richly furnished, stands permanent, though this be fled. It's purchased and paid for too, by him who hath enough to do. A price so vast as is unknown, yet by thy gift is made thine own. There's wealth enough, I need no more. Farewell, my pelf, farewell, my store. The world no longer let me love. My hope and treasure lies above. I love how, you know, she, she's realizing I was laying my treasures up on earth. Let me direct them toward my heavenly home. And she includes the gospel in here, right? This home in heaven is paid for by him who hath enough to do a price so vast as is unknown, right? Our home in heaven's paid for through the blood of Christ. What more could she ask for? She has everything she needs. Um, and, and this is Anne Bradstreet. I mean, it just, you can read many poems of hers and it's just this, you know, she has real emotions. She starts to turn really introspectively, but then she gets her thoughts away from herself and she puts them on Christ where they belong. Uh, the second lesson I think we can learn from Bradstreet is, and there's men here, which I, I didn't know we'd have men, but I think 
hopefully make some applications here. Um, she embraced the role of being a wife and a mother. She wrote a poem in reference to her children. And this was written when some of her children were old enough that they had married, they were moving out. And she, like we say, you know, I have an empty nest. She writes about herself being a mother bird with eight little birds in her nest. And some of them are starting to fly away. And just like a mother today, there's mixed feelings about that, right? Like, oh, are they ready? I'm gonna miss them. I'm afraid that something's gonna hurt them, right? Um, so even in the 1600s, <laughs> Moms didn't like having the empty nest, apparently. And you think about it, I'm like, what was there to be afraid of in the 1600s? I mean, come on, right? Um, but this world has fallen. It was just as fallen in the 1600s. It was just as dangerous. In fact, and I tried to find, was there anything to, to prove that Anne Bradstreet knew a whole lot about what had happened in Salem with the witch trials, and I couldn't find anything. Didn't look that hard, but she, she had to have known. I can't imagine that she didn't know, because she didn't live that far away, about all the witch trials. And whether there was actual witchcraft going on, or whether Satan was using accusations of witchcraft, I don't know. Either way, he was, I think he was probably pretty happy about what was happening in, in the Salem witch trials. Because in some cases, there were women who were absolutely, every account was that they were godly women and they were convicted as witches and hanged. Satan would love that, right? He would probably be just as happy about that as people doing actual witchcraft. So, I mean, this is the 1600s that these things are happening and Bradstreet's children were exposed, you know, to, to this knowledge, I'm sure, and you know, there's, Satan is roaming about seeking whom he may devour, whether that's 400 years ago in New England or today. Um, so I decided to kind of change how I was going to talk about this because I was going to talk more about her, her homemaking and how that was very important to her, and it was. Um, her brother-in-law, when he had her book published, he included a preface that said he could guarantee that she hadn't neglected any of her home duties. Um, because, you know, women are told, keep your home, right? This comes from the Bible. Women aren't supposed to be roaming around as busybodies. Paul told them, go home and keep your home, right? Anne Bradstreet did all that. She wasn't wasting her time. She wasn't slacking off to write her poetry. She would stay up late and forego other enjoyments so that she could write her poetry, right? Her family, her home, that all came first. So I was gonna kind of go along those lines. But then I was thinking more about um, laboring for our children more in the way of really preparing them uh, for the evils of this world. Um, something recently happened I won't really get into but just someone was unkind to my child my seven-year-old and just said some un unkind things this is an adult and I thought what what's going on here and my husband and I just like this is this isn't normal this is weird and we both felt like this is a spiritual attack you know, and I'm like, is God, or is Satan trying to get to us through what's happening with our child? 
And the realization came to me, Satanist, not a gentleman, right? We typically would not say something against someone's children. We know you don't go there. You have a problem with the, the parent, you don't attack their children, right? People who do that are not good people, right? But Satan doesn't care. He doesn't say, oh, their kids are off limits, right? Job's kids weren't off limits, right? Um, and so I think Anne Bradstreet knew we have to prepare our children for a very real, fallen world. Um, in her poem, in reference to her children, she says, I taught what was good and what was ill, what would save life and what would kill. She, she really labored for her children. She talks about not sparing any cost nor any labor till at last they felt their wing. Right? She put time, she put effort. It was a labor of love, but yet it was actually self-sacrificial to pour into her children so that they were ready when they left the nest. She says, my cares, as, as, they're, as they're taking wing, she says, my cares are more and fears than ever. My throbs such now as four were never. Even as they're adults or getting ready for adulthood, I'm even more concerned. I'm even more fearful for what my children could face. Now, it's Anne Bradstreet. So guess what she does with those fears? Well, she, you know, she's going to trust God. Um, and this is, you can read this poem. Um, it's, I think the Poetry Foundation probably has it online. Um, she ends up kind of switching her thoughts and thinking, well, I'm getting older. And I say, actually, I'm going to leave this nest and go to my heavenly nest. Uh, so that kind of seems to alleviate some of her fears for her children because she's not always going to be around. Um, but this idea that we, we go through pains and a lot of labor, well, physically, to bring eight children into the world, that was a lot of physical pain and labor but the bringing up of them spiritually was a work that required pain and labor too. And as I think about New England, right, it would be nice to think, oh, come on, Anne. I mean, you were in 1600s New England. It wasn't anything to worry about. You don't know what we're going through today with transgenderism and all these things that are facing our kids. It's the same world. It's the same devil. It's the same sinful hearts. Um, but yet we need to be very vigilant in raising our children and in maybe it's not our own children anymore maybe it's your grandchildren or the people just under the children under your care or the younger Christians under your care um, it's it's a work without end probably um, and then I just have a quick last point before we have some discussion um, as I mentioned, Anne Bradstreet, she didn't get to just wake up in the morning and I'm going to spend five hours writing my poem today. It was finding little snatches of time. But God had given her a gift. Um, I mean, we're still studying her sec secular, you know, literary scholars are still studying her because her poetry is very good. Um, so God had given her this gift 
and a desire to use it. So she did nurture that gift. She found the time to use it. It's not really a skill that was all that useful in colonial New England. Uh, when I started teaching English at Mid-Vermont, the teacher who had been there before me, he was, he was young. Uh, they were supposed to, he and the history teacher were trying to kind of pair up their uh, American history class and the American literature class. And it was for young, younger students. They weren't really at the Ann Bradstreet level. And they said, you know, we really just struggled with pairing up the, the literature and the history in the colonial era. There just didn't seem to be that much. I said, yeah, there wasn't much because they were too busy, like, surviving. They didn't have a lot of time to write. Um, so, you know, there's sermons and there is Anne Bradstreet and a couple other poets, but there's not a whole, there's no fiction. You know, <laughs> they didn't have time for that. So her gift and her own time probably didn't look all that useful. Uh, and her brother-in-law knew she could face some um, accusations for lazy woman neglecting her household, you know, so he makes sure people know, no, that's not the case here. Um, yet she still developed this gift that God had given her. She never knew the reach of her ministry. I am positive she never thought someday I will be studied in American literature classes. People will write dissertations on me. No. Uh, she's still ministering to other Christians 400 years almost after her death. She nurtured that gift. She acknowledged it as a, as a gift from God. And God was the one in charge of using that for his glory. Um, and I would just kind of connect this thinking, you know, many of us, our churches are small. Maybe there's not that much of a place for, I know in my church, I one time expressed that I wish there, that I could have more involvement in the church, that my, my job keeps me a little too busy to really be all that involved in the church. And I was pretty much told, oh, there's really nothing we need you to do anyway. You know, and it's like, oh, that kind of hurts. But those little ways, those gifts that God has given us, you know, we might not see the, the use for that gift right now. We might not see how God's actually using it, but we can trust that He does have an outlet and a plan for those gifts. Praise God for the life and poetry of Anne Bradstreet. I pray that this episode was richly encouraging to you, and may the Lord give you grace to trust Him and to worship Him through writing, singing, through suffering, through hardship, in good times and in bad. May he have the fruit of your lips and your pen as you look to him and trust him in everything. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.